Sometimes you just need to stop and thank God. Sometimes you just need to stop what you're doing and thank God. In the middle of your parenting and in the middle of your suffering and in the middle of your grief and in the middle of your bad day, in the middle of your crabbiness when you're not in a good mood. And I was, that happened to me this week and my sermon was like... Stop and thank God. I don't want to. But I did. In the middle of your crabby days. Or in the middle of you encouraging a church to take up an offering to help poor Christians who are suffering, sometimes you just need to stop and thank God. And that's exactly what Paul does today in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So turn there in your Bibles. Paul is in the middle of this plea to the Corinthian church to finish up taking this collection of money for these poverty-stricken churches in Jerusalem who are undergoing a famine and persecution for their faith. And Paul just stops for a second in the middle of all of that to just give thanks to God. And if we learn to do this, to just stop in the middle of whatever we're doing and thank Jesus, if we do this, it just might actually change our lives. Hmm. This could actually change our lives. So let's learn from Paul and company today, shall we? Let's humble ourselves and have receptive hearts to receive the word of God today. And if we do that, it will honor and glorify the Lord. And isn't that why we exist? In fact, four times in our passage today, Paul will go out of his way to stress that all glory goes to God in ministry. I'm going to point them out as we go along. The phrases will be underlined in the verses on the screens. And if you haven't yet, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. So let's just stop there with the first five words, but thanks be to God. In Greek, it's just four words, charis de to theo, okay? If you wanted to know some Greek, that's a good Greek phrase to memorize. Charis de to theo, but thanks be to God. Circle that phrase in your Bible. There's the first way that we see Paul pointing to the glory of the Lord. He wants to thank God, and by doing so, he wants to give God all the glory. So let's just focus on those five words for a second, because those five words just might keep you from going crazy when your life is overwhelming. Those five words are worth putting on a post-it note and sticking it on your bathroom mirror so that you can be reminded all the time that you need to stop and thank God. Or to put them on a post-it note and stick it on the dashboard of your car. Or make it the screen lock on your iPhone. But thanks be to God. Some of the most heart-stabilizing words in Scripture. And they have the power to pull you out of a pity party. And they have the power to pull you out of a conversation that's oozing with grumbling and complaining. 
And they have the power to pull you out of cynicism. And they have the power to pull you out of bitterness. And they have the power to pull you out of despair. And they have the power to give you a grateful heart. Those five simple words really do have that kind of power. For reals. And the word thanks that Paul uses in verse 16 is actually the Greek word charis, which is the Greek word for grace. Sometimes this word charis, uh, sometimes this word is translated as favor, sometimes it's translated as power, sometimes it's translated as gift, and sometimes it's translated as it is today in verse 16 as thanks. It kind of all depends on the context. This word charis is actually where we get our word Eucharist for the Lord's Supper. When we celebrate communion, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we celebrate Eucharist, as some traditions call it, we are giving thanks to God. The Greek word is Eucharisto. Paul uses that word Eucharisto, I give thanks, in 1 Corinthians 1.4. When he writes to the Corinthians and says, I give thanks to God for you. Eucharisto, Eucharist. To give thanks. When we give thanks, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're giving thanks that God sent Jesus to live and die for us. We're giving thanks that God forgives us of our sins. We're giving thanks that God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Paul stops mid-offering plea And he says, but thanks be to God. Paul actually loves this little phrase. He uses it six times in his letter, Romans 6, Romans 7, 1 Corinthians 15. And then he uses it three times in the book of 2 Corinthians. He loves this little phrase. He uses it all the time. And we would do well to imitate Paul here, to stop and give thanks. And notice when Paul talks about money, he is quick to give thanks to God. Think about that. That's not a bad idea. If you're talking about money and finances and budgets and giving, it's not a bad idea to periodically stop and just thank God. Paul thanks God because God has been working in his heart and in the heart of Titus to give them both a genuine care and concern for this Corinthian church. I was thinking about this this week and I thought, this is miracle, okay? This is miracle. Sometimes we think of like physical healing as miracle and it is, but you know what? This is miracle. God is working in the hearts of sinners, working in Paul's heart, working in Titus's heart to give them love and care and concern for this church. Listen, that is a miracle that the living, transcendent God of the universe, infinitely glorious, humbles himself, stoops down to work inside sinful human hearts. Who is this God? Man, I just can't read verse 16 without thinking, this is a miracle. God Almighty working in the sinful hearts of human beings. And since God was doing all of this work in the hearts of all of these people, then you guessed it, he is the one who gets the glory. If Paul and Titus have care and concern for the Corinthian church, it's not because of their personality. 
Well, that's just their personality, Pastor, or their Enneagram, whatever number that makes them caring and concerning. No, God is doing the work, and therefore, God gets the glory. He always is the one who should get the glory. It's sad that we have to say that, right? But we live in a time of narcissistic pastors who think they are God's gift to the church. More on that later, okay? But we see the two main issues here when it comes to money. Our hearts and God's glory. Paul hasn't even brought up money yet, and he actually won't. He'll never use that word. What does he bring up? He brings up God's glory, and he brings up men's hearts. Hmm. Now, why? Why would he do that? Because that's the starting place when it comes to speaking about money and offerings and budgets, etc. We must begin with, number one, God's glory, and number two, our own hearts. In fact, that's the starting place, really, for all the issues of life. Really? Right? Marriage, parenting, work, church, it always comes down to God's glory and your heart. It comes down to, is God being glorified? Do I want him to be glorified in this situation that I've found myself in? And secondly, it comes down to, what's going on inside my heart? Do I care for and love others, or am I just being self-absorbed? Paul wants God to be glorified, and so he kind of slams on the brakes here for a minute just to thank him. And then Paul will move on from talking about Titus to talk about another co-worker, a famous gospel preacher who would accompany Titus to collect the offering from the Corinthian church. Paul's going to send a celebrity pastor who has over one million followers on Twitter to help Titus collect this offering from the Corinthian church. Really? You're going to send a famous guy? Yeah? I mean, that would be like sending Chuck Swindoll to gather the offering. And that's what Paul does. Look at verse 18. With him, with Titus, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. Now, we have no idea who this famous gospel-preaching brother was, but Paul did, and so did the Corinthians, and more importantly, God did. And Paul totally could have name-dropped this guy if he wanted to. He could have said, I'm sending R.C. Sproul with you. I'm sending Alistair Begg. I'm sending John Piper. I'm sending John MacArthur. He could have name-dropped this guy totally if he wanted to, but he doesn't. He just simply calls him the brother who is famous for preaching the gospel. But this celebrity pastor that Paul mentions here, and I'm not using that term in a derogatory way because there are celebrity pastors now, right? How weird that that's a phrase that's actually in our culture now. There are celebrity pastors. How weird is that? There are celebrity pastors today that are frankly disgusting and antithetical to the gospel. But I'm not using the the phrase that way. But this guy, this famous brother, goes unnamed because it's not about him. It's about Jesus. It's not about building a platform. It's not about becoming an influencer on social media. It's not about getting a blue check mark next to your name on Twitter. 
That stuff has no place in the church. There's only one hero here. There's only one star. There's only one name to honor and praise, and it's Jesus. And you know that, but it's sad that we have to talk about it, isn't it? Because there are narcissistic pastors and ministry leaders out there today. But what is special about this famous brother is that he had a burning passion for the gospel. He'd evidently become famous throughout the churches for preaching the gospel, for preaching the good news that God saves sinners by His grace. And this is the kind of guy that you want to go to Corinth and be on the team of men who collect the money and carry it miles and weeks away to Jerusalem. You want a guy in that fellowship who loves the gospel, especially when you consider the super apostles who were still influencing the church in Corinth. Recall what we've seen about the super apostles so far. They were a group of false teachers who had invaded the church in Corinth and were peddling a works-based righteousness through obedience to the law, that you could earn your way to God. And so Paul sends a guy who is famous for preaching the true gospel, and he sends him along with Titus. I love that, because this guy is going to inject some truth into the Corinthian church to counter the theology of the super apostles. And we'll really start talking about them when we get to chapter 10. But notice in verse 19 the phrase, for the glory of the Lord himself. There's the second phrase. Circle that phrase. It's the second time Paul goes out of his way to give all the glory to Jesus. He wants to honor the Lord in his ministry, not himself. Paul's not out looking for uh, attaboys and pats on the back and saying, oh, we just love you, pastor. He didn't want that. He says, let's just look to Jesus. And even though Paul is talking about money here, he keeps the glory of the Lord ever before him. And so we have two men so far who are going to Corinth to get the offering that they've been taking up for the suffering Jerusalem church. Number one, we have caring Titus. And number two, we have the famous Chuck Swindoll type gospel preacher. These men and a few others will get the offering and take it to Jerusalem. Look at verse 20. We take this course of sending these men so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. There's the third time that Paul goes out of his way to stress the glory of the Lord. He wants to do what is honorable in the Lord's sight. Circle that phrase in verse 21. Paul wanted to avoid any blame in mishandling uh, these finances. So his plan is, is to send Titus, to send the famous gospel preacher guy, and to send another yet unnamed man, but a man who is... A man of tested character to get the money. Paul knew that he needed men with an honest reputation and proven character handling these finances. He wanted to honor the Lord with this whole offering situation. And again, we see that the glory of God was the dominant theme of Paul's ministry. 
Paul wants to be out in the open with the handling of this money, and he wants godly people of tested character to handle said money. It reminds me of this guy I knew when I was in seminary at Dallas Theological Seminary. He worked for a very large church and ministry. You may know the ministry. I'll just, I won't tell you what it is, but see if you're uh, savvy enough to figure it out. This ministry gives insights to help people live. Maybe you just guessed the name of the ministry. And he had a credit card from the ministry. And so after Greek class one day, several of us went to lunch, and he said to the group of very poor seminary students, hey, y'all, it's my treat. I got lunch today. To which all of us very poor seminary students copied the Apostle Paul and said, we are dirt poor, but thanks be to God. We stopped and thanked God. And so we all placed our order one by one. There was like seven or eight of us. And we kept saying, the guy at the end is going to pay. And then after he paid for all of our lunches, we all sat down, and once again, we expressed our gratitude to him. said, thank you. And then he said, actually, I let so-and-so buy us lunch today. And he pulled out this credit card that he had with the ministry name on it. And then he said the name of the famous preacher. That famous preacher used to pastor a big EV free church, evangelical free church, down in Southern California, I'm sure y'all have heard of this guy. That famous preacher's name rhymes with truck swim ball. And so this guy pulled out the credit card and flashed it, and then he belted out, actually, I let truck swim ball buy us lunch today. And so when his food was ready and they called his order number, he went to pick up this very large baked potato that he ordered. And he only ordered a large uh, baked potato, so you know how big it was. It was It was huge. And it was covered in butter and sour cream and chives and bacon bits. It was loaded. And so he started filling up his fountain drink with one hand while holding the tray with this very large baked potato on it. I mean, it was Texas-sized. Everything's bigger in Texas, right? Okay, So the baked potatoes are bigger in Texas. So he's, he's holding this tray with this large baked potato on it. Filling up his fountain drink in one hand, and then the baked potato started to slide on the tray. And it was a really big baked potato. And it slid off the tray just below his belt and went down all over his pants. Down both legs, everywhere, even onto his boots. Because we were in Texas, he's wearing boots. Listen, I believe in providence. And so I think the Lord let gravity win that day. I think an angel came down from heaven and gave that baked potato a little angelic shove. Jesus had a wonderful plan for that baked potato's life. I believe that because of his lax attitude toward the ministry's money, that his khaki pants met Mr. Potato Head that day. And then we were not surprised to hear that he was shortly fired after that incident by that ministry, probably because he abused the finances and the money and the credit card. The point that Paul is making here in 2 Corinthians 8 and why he sends qualified, tested men of character to Corinth is we have to be very careful handling the Lord's money. Paul was. He was open. He was transparent. 
He was concerned with how others would see how he handled money. He was concerned and very careful about who he put in charge of money. And all of this matters because the Lord's glory is at stake. His reputation is on the line. His honor is the concern of Paul's heart. The fame of Jesus' name is at stake in Corinth and at stake with us here at Grace. Why? Because this church is his church, okay? We are his bride. We exist for his glory, not ours. We're not here to make a name for ourselves. We're here for the sake of his name. Listen, that's entry-level discipleship, isn't it? But we need the reminder because, one, we're all selfish, right? And we all want our own way. We all want to get what we want and our preferences and our wishes. And we live like we're number one, don't we? So we need that reminder from this passage today that it's all about God's glory because each and every one of us live every day as if it were for our glory, right? So we need that reminder. And secondly, we need that reminder because there are real celebrity pastors out there who have turned their ministry into a brand. There are narcissistic pastors out there who make ministry all about them. And so this little paragraph in 2 Corinthians 8 is sadly neglected by many pastors, but it's oh so relevant to our time. And if any pastors ever do dip their toes into these waters, it's usually just to talk about giving and tithing and building campaigns. But this little paragraph is desperately needed in our day because there are so many men in pastoral ministry who are narcissists. And it's sickening because we know that all of life is about God's glory. There's another guy named Chuck, not Swindoll, but Chuck DeGroat, who has written a book called When Narcissism Comes to Church, where he says this, the narcissistic pastor is the only one who can occupy the limelight. Even if he publicly affirms someone, it's in service of his exceptional gift to hire talent or his brilliant vision for the church. Narcissistic pastors are anxious and insecure shepherds who do not lead the sheep to still waters, but into hurricane winds. These are traits and tendencies that do not belong in a follower of Jesus. And yet, in ministry settings, narcissistic leaders can corral great power and may wield their power in cruel, manipulative, devious, and exploitative ways. Indeed, Their rage is often accompanied by a simmering jealousy of anyone who steals attention, power, or admiration from them. And we see it happening in a lot of well-known churches right now. This is exactly what the super apostles who'd invaded the Corinthian church were all about. They were narcissists. They made ministry about them. They had to be the center of attention. They made every conversation circle back to them. They wanted their ego stroke. They were full of pride and arrogance, and they were perfectionists, thinking they were keeping the Mosaic law and earning righteousness with God through their own obedience. And Paul writes, and says, ministry isn't about any of that stuff. It's about the glory of the Lord. 
Steve Brown says, narcissism and perfectionism are the devil's stepkids and they live in the same house. That was the super apostles. Narcissism and perfectionism. Listen, Grace, narcissism and perfectionism will ruin a church. But humility and getting low before the Lord will make a church thrive. Understand this, Grace. Thankfulness will make a church thrive. Thankfulness will clear the air of mumbling and grumbling and complaining. Those things, mumbling, grumbling, and complaining, they can't thrive in a church that is thankful. And the the great thing about this, the great thing about verse 16, is that you don't have to have a PhD in systematic theology to be thankful, do you? You just have to stop and give thanks. And that's why Paul brings up these three men here. He's thankful for them. He has learned the secret to ministry joy and the secret to becoming a thriving church. And it's this, we must learn to stop and thank God. Paul stops mid-offering plea to thank and glorify and honor the Lord for these three co-workers. He's quick to give honor to the Lord, quick to thank God for all of the evidence of grace that he sees. And there's a lesson here. For each one of us. Listen, sometimes you just have to stop and interrupt yourself and interrupt whatever you're doing and thank the Lord and just give thanks. Listen, anybody can get in on this. Even if you're suffering, you can give thanks. I'm not saying that you deny the pain, I'm not saying that you deny the sorrow, I'm not saying that you deny the heartache, but even if you're suffering, you can stop in the middle of it. And just give thanks. You can say, I'm suffering. I'm overwhelmed. I'm broke. It all feels hopeless, etc. But thanks be to God, blank. And then you just fill in the blank. What are you thankful for today? What can you fill into this blank in order to give God glory? All of this blank is happening in my life. But thanks be to God for blank. What is it? What is all of this stuff that's happening in your life? Identify it. Talk about it. All of this blank is happening in my life. But thanks be to God. Glory be to God. Because this is also what's happening in my life. That'll change your day, won't it? Remember, Paul is suffering as he writes this letter. The strains and pains of ministry are real for him. He is overwhelmed. But he stops again in the middle of this very long letter. In the middle of this section about taking up an offering. And he says, but thanks be to God. And sometimes you have to stop. You have to interrupt your complaining. You have to interrupt your crabbiness like me the other day. You have to interrupt your mumbling. Interrupt your grumbling. Interrupt your pity party. And just simply say, but thanks be to God. Sometimes you have to stop whatever it is you're talking about. And just give thanks to God. There's a lesson here for us. And maybe somebody here today really needs to hear that from the Holy Spirit. Well, let's continue in chapter 8. Look at verse 23. As for Titus, he is my partner and my fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the church's 
the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So Paul has bragged about the Corinthians. Now he's telling them to live up to their reputation when these men arrive. But but again, it's not about Paul and company. And it's not about the reputation of the Corinthians either. It's really about the glory of God, the glory of Christ. As Paul says in verse 23, the church is the glory of Christ. There's the fourth time that Paul points to God's glory in this passage. So circle that phrase in verse 23, the glory of Christ. The church is the place where the glory of God is seen in this world. And if God's glory is not seen in the church, then we're in trouble. If God's glory is not seen here at Grace, then we're doing something wrong. And we might end up with a Texas-sized loaded baked potatoes on our khakis. As we read earlier, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We're called as individual disciples and as a church family to reflect the glory of God to the Central Coast. We want to be a church where people feel the weightiness of God here. The Greek word glory in verse 23, doxa is the word. It, has, it means like loftiness, majesty, splendor. It's the radiance of God. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod. It means weightiness or heaviness, importance. I've told you this many times, but the Hebrew word for glory is like what people used to say in the late 60s and early 70s. They would say things like, whoa, man, that's heavy, right? Chester Harder used to say that, right? (laughs) That's the idea behind the word glory. It means that God is the most important or preeminent person in this or in any other universe. So we want people to come to grace and to interact with us and be a part of our ministries and say, whoa, man, this place is heavy. I feel God here. I feel his love. How can I get in on this? I feel his weightiness, his importance here at this church. We want grace to be a place where people people discover that Jesus is the most important person in the universe, where they encounter the Jesus of the Bible, the real Jesus. We want people to feel and to sense that God is the most important and preeminent person in this or in any other universe. That's the opposite of the Jesus of many churches today, where they tell you that Jesus just wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy. That's the American dream Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. The American dream Jesus gives you every single thing you want, anything that your heart desires. The American dream Jesus promises that to you. Big house, new cars, plural, fat bank account. Basically, the American dream Jesus offers you a designer life, the designer life that you have always wanted. And he certainly never allows you to suffer. He's like Santa Claus. And in the end, what does the American dream Jesus really give you? He gives you death. 
He serves up death because self getting its way is just death. When we, just, when we fight to get our way instead of living for God's glory, when we're so selfish, what we're inviting into our lives is death. It just kills us. What did Jesus say? You die to self, what? You really live. If God's glory grips our hearts, then our individual lives and our life as a church family here at Grace, if God's glory grips our hearts, our lives will become a living advertisement that God is good to bad people who deserve his wrath. That's what we want our city to know. God is good to bad people who deserve his wrath. That's the glory, the weightiness, the heaviness of the gospel. And God longs for that glory to be seen in our individual lives and in this church so that others would see how he treats us because of Jesus and they would say, wow, God is good to bad people and I'm bad, so how can I get in on this? Every person here on the Central Coast needs to know that God is good to bad people because of Jesus And when you realize just how good God has been to a bad sinner like you, you just might want to stop and thank God. You might want to stop and thank God that he worked in your heart and that by the Holy Spirit, he regenerated you and made you alive in Christ. Listen, you may not feel it today, But there's a lot to be thankful for in your life. A lot to be thankful for in this church. And so a church must always stop periodically and ask, are we mumbling? Are we grumbling? Or are we thankful? And you as an individual disciple will need to ask that. And your family will need to stop periodically and say, are we mumbling? Are we grumbling? Are we complaining? Or... Are we thankful? Listen, what if we, I had this thought this morning, wrote it in my notes, what if we thanked our way to revival? You want to see revival come? What if we just got really thankful, started putting on social media, talking to people about the things that we were thankful to God for, and what if revival came? What if we actually thanked our way to renewal and refreshment and revival? And revival would come to grace and to the Central Coast just because we got really thankful about things. Hmm, Maybe it would happen. Maybe God's saying, I triple dog dare you to be thankful because I just might blow your socks off. So here's what I want you to do today. Tell Jesus just five things that you are thankful for. And then tell others. Tell your family. Tell your co-workers tomorrow. Let's have Thanksgiving in July. How about that? Sometimes we talk about Christmas in July, right? Sometimes we take up a missionary offering for our missionaries, Christmas in July. But let's do Thanksgiving in July today. Let's stop in the middle of July and let's just thank God. And let's especially thank God for the gospel. That he's good to bad people who only deserve his wrath. And the proof of that is that he sent his son Jesus for people like us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming for sinners. Thank you that you're merciful 
and gracious. We ask you to forgive us today because each one of us, Lord, have lived our lives maybe a lot this week as if we were the king or queen of the universe, as if we were the most preeminent and important person in the universe. And so we've sought our own glory. And so we ask you to forgive us and we thank you that we do. Help us to be a grateful church, a thankful church. And Jesus, we ask you that you would bring revival. Would you cause us to be thankful? Would you continue working in our hearts like you did in Titus and Paul's heart and give us care and love for one another and give us care and love for the Central Coast, Lord? Would you do that in our hearts? We want to thank our way to revival and then we will stop periodically along the way and just say thank you. And we do that now, Jesus. Thank you that you're good to bad people. It's all for your glory. In your name we pray, amen.